0: And you're listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Hillary Hutchison is an inspiration, shop owner, guide, mother, and brand ambassador. Hillary's introduction to fly fishing happened quite by mistake, and thank goodness it did. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Hillary to discuss her upbringing, climate change, and being a fishing mom.
1: I was born in Medford, Oregon, and my parents worked for the National Park Service, and um, my mom was in forestry and botany, and my dad was in wildlife management and law enforcement, so he's a park ranger. My mom was a naturalist, like leading um, you know, the hikes and everything up, up in Crater Lake, and before that in Mount Rainier. And then they moved from Mount Rainier, Crater Lake, where I was born, then to Glacier National Park, so I was raised in Glacier. Now, they met in the field? Yep, yeah, they met. It's kind of a sweet romantic story and it might have changed over the years as I've told it as most of my stories (laughs) get a little more colorful. But the way I understand it is my mom was leading naturalist hikes at Mount Rainier and my dad thought she was cute. And so he dressed up as a tourist and signed up for her walk and talks. And um, she started noticing that the same like goofy dude was kind of kept coming on some of her hikes. (laughs) And um, so she finally called him out and found out that he actually worked in the national park too and so she asked him if he would help her out by watering her plants when she was gone on on uh a trip, And so he said yes. And so when he went to her apartment to water her plants, she was in forestry and botany. And so the whole apartment there at the government housing for the Park Service was just full of like hundreds of plants. And she had a list and all the plants had names and she wanted him to call them all by name. And they all had a song affiliated with them. And she made him sing. Every plant their song. And so it was like putting him to the test, which I thought was adorable (laughs) and hysterical. (laughs) And I guess when she came back from her trip, he was standing in the apartment singing to all the plants. And so, yeah, she was... Um, done for. So Aww, yeah. that's
0: so cute. I love <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Now, what? I mean, what is your back? What are they? I mean, how do I ask this politely? Mm-hmm. Like, what? Are, what are your orange origins? Yeah. What's your origin?
1: Yeah. Well, that's very funny because if we were playing two truths and a lie, you would think <laughs> the truth was that I was a Native American for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But half Japanese.
0: Oh wow. Because mm-hmm.
1: you are so unique looking, and uh, your sister too. You're
0: beautiful, but definitely, I would have thought. That you guys were Native American.
1: Yeah, it's hard to figure out because um, my mom is Japanese American, full, and so my dad is half German and half Irish. So we're only three things German, Irish, and Japanese. Okay. All very volatile kind of people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. But your dad's white, basically. Mm -hmm.
0: And your mom, does she look like she's half? She's full. Yeah. Oh, she is. So I'm half.
1: Yep. So you're the half. -er. And she definitely looks Japanese for sure. Now, did you have any of that culture growing up then? Not really, because she's third generation. Yeah. So, um, in Japanese American culture, when you're born in the United States, you are apple pie and baseball. Okay. I mean, it's you—you know—that was kind of the definition of American as like you're born here on American soil, and um, and that's you know kind of how you're going to grow up. And so they really instilled that, like this is proud to be an American, kind of a thing. And of course, then you know, with her family going through internment and that sort of thing. It was like coming out of the internment camps. It was now now we're still gonna be strong to our American roots and heritage. We were born here. We're Americans, even though this was an unjust thing, this is really important to us to still stay true to our Americana. So wow. That takes (laughs) some serious strength. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it it is sad that some of that Japanese culture, you know, that I wish that I had now um, isn't there, but I understand why. I understand how important it was for them to um, really raise their children as true American citizens that they were, you know, born in Seattle. And so I understand, but it is a bit lost, you know, it's kind of a loss. So
0: Yeah, I get it. Now let's talk a little bit about what it was like being brought up by them, because they mm-hmm. sound like they had a serious connection to the land.
1: Yes. How did they pass that on to you guys? I think the main thing they did. To kind of liberate my brother and sister and I in the outdoors was just that—to let us be at large. That's yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what we kind of called us. They turned us loose. My dad used to have a saying called "on the loose." Like one of the most important things he did in his life was um, a solo cross country road trip when he graduated from college, and he, you know, experienced so much during that time that he really wanted us to experience on our own. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it wasn't just teaching us what's what in the outdoors, but giving us such free reign to go and find out for ourselves that we could make mistakes out there. We got hurt out there. We learned a lot of important lessons on our own out there, and we had each other, too. So uh, I think just kind of turning us loose (laughs) in Montana was a really important thing that they did for us, and that's really where my sister and brother and I got our connections to the outdoors. It shows in your own parenting, and we'll come back to that later because you are a mom. Mm -hmm. How many kids have you got? Oh my gosh. Well, I ha- technically have two, but they're teenagers. So I think they count for like 10 each. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Whitney, who's on the show next, she has how many kids? Mm-hmm. My sister has three, and they're um, eight, six, and four. And so between us, we're kind of running the gamut of emotions. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, at least you have each other. What about your brother? And so my brother is in Portland. He doesn't have any kids, but he and his boyfriend, I think, at some point will will probably venture into that world. But so far, I think that they're living vicariously through my sister. and I. Yeah. Giving grandparents a break. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They yeah. they see what my parents are going through with all of our kids. So I think at some point they'll probably have kids, but right now they're just enjoying being the hunkles. My brother and his <laughs> boyfriend, we call them the <laughs> hunkles. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Are you the eldest? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm seven years older than my brother and two and a half years older than my sister. Oh, wow. So you guys were really close. I would imagine you guys
0: were also close growing up.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
0: you, Seem close now.
1: Yeah, I well, we're so different. So, growing up, I think we were close as siblings, but didn't have a lot of the same interests. I mean, we loved living where we lived in Montana. And we really enjoyed our childhood, but we just had really different interests. Like my sister was, you know, a stellar athlete, like all state sports. She's on a wall of fame in our school for sports and academics. She's just like, you know, that that, girl. mm, Yeah. But also that girl, but also like really a great, a great friend and a cool person. I was spinning Brody's in my car in the parking lot. And like, you know, so she, she was, um, she was a, a super cool person to be around. And I was, uh, probably less cool to be be around. I was just, like, trying really hard all the time, like, in, you know, always studying and always, like, focusing and stressed out and kind of that oh, kind of thing. You really? Yeah. I just don't see you as that. <laughs> well, I, wa- I definitely was in high school. I was worried in high school that if I didn't do all these things, then – you know, nothing good would happen to me. And I I got out of that. But in high school, I remember just being really stressed all the time. Like, you know, two-a-days sports and, and studying really late and, like, retaking my SATs a million times, that kind of thing, you know, and just, like, trying to be in every single club and trying to, you know – be president of all kinds of stuff, just because I was so worried that it was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get a job. I'm not going to get into college. I'm not going to, you know, where my (laughs) sister was the opposite, man. She didn't, she didn't crack a book and she got straight A's. Yes. And she didn't like, she would run marathons off the couch, you know? Yeah. And so then my brother, our brother was... uh, really, really good at arts and music. And yeah, so he was like in all the plays and um, really, yeah, artistic and musical. And, you know, and I, Whitney and I are really neither of those. <laughs> Sounds like you guys kept your parents entertained. Oh, yeah. If nothing else. Totally. They just like would watch us sometimes and be like, who are you people? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell me about your house then.
0: Was it the sort of thing where you were part of a community or were you mm-hmm. guys in like a, a an outdoor, what are, what are they called? Forest Rangers, right. you know, Little simple home somewhere in the mm-hmm. mountains.
1: Yeah, so uh in Glacier National Park, there's like most of the national parks, there's government housing. So there, you know, it's kind of like these houses that you rent as Park Service employees, and that's where we started. And then um, they moved to Columbia Falls, which is just like a 15 minute drive from West Glacier, uh, and it's the last municipality outside of Glacier National Park. So that's uh-huh. kind of where the bigger school is the high school and that's, you know, where you can get your groceries and there's like an actual town, but it is the kind of village that raises a child for sure. So it's yeah. uh it's just like 4,000 people. And then it's got a big high school cause it takes all of the outlying towns, kids. That's why we could just be at large. Like we were just on our bikes and running around and it was a great, super great place to grow up. Talk to me a little bit about how you got into fishing. So since my dad uh, worked in at headquarters in Glacier National Park in the summer times, instead of childcare, like, we would just go up there with him. And so he had us ready with a whole bunch of cool things to do. So we bring our bikes up there. We had this old leaky inflatable kayak and then hiking <laughs> shoes and stuff. And so basically we were just kind of running around the Apgar area, which is this the little village right near headquarters in West Glacier and um you know from 9 to 5 while he was at his job we were just kind of running around there my sister and i mostly my brother was a little young he's 7 years younger than i so he didn't come into the park as much but we had this lake, leaky inflatable kayak and it had like duct tape on it and he would let us kind of float around lake mcdonald and the the problem is lake mcdonald drains into lower mcdonald creek which drains into the middle fork of the flathead river and so we started in the lake, but that got kind of boring. So we would just start floating into the creek, and then we'd start floating into the river. So pretty much every day, we were just floating the river. <laughs> did your dad know that? You know what? I think, he, I think he did. I think he acted like he didn't at the time, because that would be irresponsible parenting. <laughs> but um, but I think he probably knew we were, and he knew we would be OK. But it's kind of funny looking back, because like we actually had life jackets that we would wear. Mm-hmm. Because to me, and I still do that, to me, I I take a bit of risk, but I, I don't take unnecessary risk. So, you know, I'm always wearing my life jacket and in big water and stuff. So I remember even then knowing that probably some sort of shit's going to happen, but I, I don't want to die from it. I still have to be able to, we'd hitchhike back and get to headquarters, you know, by five. How old were you guys at this time? I think, you know, it was, uh, like 10, 10, 11 kind of in there, you know, And you're Um, hitchhiking back.
0: Yeah. Would you do it
1: now? Um, no, it was a diff- I, different, time. it was a different time, I think. And also a lot fewer people. We've experienced 14% visitation every single year for the last many years. It was just fewer people. Most of the people who would pick us up knew us and they kind of knew our route. Yeah. <laughs> they knew this is like <laughs> what we would do. And so sometimes if we couldn't, you know, find a ride or whatever, then we would just say, Oh, like we need to go pick up the kayak we'd just leave it on the side you know the river and he would kind of look the other way and so in terms of how we got started fishing we just started actually not fishing and and we weren't a fishing family at all so my dad didn't fish my mom didn't fish you know we camped and every once in a while would like somebody would have a spinning rod or something like that in the mix but we weren't anglers at all Mm -hmm. and so we started my sister and I just by reading water and so we got really good at paddling and rowing and being in the water and just getting our asses kicked in the water a lot like just by default understanding what was happening with hydraulics and with obstacles and even strainers and just like all of the stuff that goes on in a river and then serendipitously we came across across a fly rod, I think, when I was like fifth or sixth grade, and she was, you know, right in there too. And and this is one of those stories that I've told so many times that, it, you know, there, it's it's true, but there I can't remember all of the exact parts about how it happened. But when we were floating um, with a friend of mine, just kind of like in the blow up, you know, kayak, uh, his grandparents had a trailer on the river just outside West Glacier. And um, Rich had this Frisbee. And it was either a Frisbee or like a Nerf ball of some sort. But it was something (laughs) we were throwing. So we get out of the river. We're up on the bank. And we're just kind of throwing this Frisbee around. Frisbee gets stuck in a tree. And so we ran into his grandparents' shed to get something to get it down. And there's like this old fly rod in the shed. So we literally grabbed the fly rod to get the thing out of the tree. (laughs) Okay. And so we're just like banging this rod through the branches, trying to get oh, the no. frisbee down. Yeah, it's like some <laughs> like you know classic vintage nice fly rod or Hopefully something. Hopefully it was glass, so it was strong. Yeah, and I, we, I mean we didn't even know it. it was just like a long stick. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and um and the grandpa comes running down and he was like don't do that. That's fragile. Let me show you how to use it. And so then like, it just became kind of messing around with it as if it could have been a bow and arrow. It could have been a slingshot. It could have been anything that we were just like suddenly messing around with. It was like almost target practice. We were just take turns practicing, um, Rich and I down in front of his grandparents place. And like, he had already kind of, he already knew how to do it. He, you know, but we weren't really doing it. So suddenly it was just like, Catching all these cutthroat right in front of the house, and his grandma would have us bring them up, and she'd cook them up. This is before a river Run through it came out, and before we had catch and release there, and it was just like, um, yeah. So I guess I was sixth grade, and and then my sister and I got uh, we went to Snappy Sports Center on our banana seat bikes, which is like a thirty minute drive, like a day long bike ride. Yeah. So we rode our bikes to Calisbell and, and um, you know bought some cheap fly rods. My parents didn't even know. And um, they didn't know. I mean, they didn't, they were just like, cool. It could have been, you know, I've said in the past, it was like we were going to a skate park or something. Like we were just like these rebels or something. Yeah. Like we bought fly rods whatever. Their <laughs> parents didn't care. So yeah. So we just kind of started um, messing around with them and then just fished our faces off through junior high. And it was just for fun. You know, it was super fun. It was just crazy. It was, and when I think back in it now, like the fish we caught back then with just being self-taught and like kind of the the habits that we built that probably would be called bad habits, but that have helped us out a little bit through time. I'd like to go back and see it. Like we probably looked just ridiculous, but. It sounds absolutely incredible. It was fun. It your was was sister fun was your best fishing buddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, she she would say like she just followed me around and did what I did. And so she was kind of like. A bit, a bit like that, like kid sister, when my friends, you know, we would be running around the park and stuff and she would, was tagging along and she just is good at every single thing she does. So right. pretty soon she was just like really good at it. <laughs> what do people in school think of the two of you guys? I don't know. Like the, it, I don't know. Did they I don't know. know? You, did they know that you fished? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I think, well, so we started, um, so we, that, that was kind of the fishing, but once we got a little bit older, like 14, 15, we, we got jobs. At glacier raft company. So we were barn boys. So it was like babysitting. I started babysitting the owner's kids and then some of the guests kids and stuff. And, and then she did too. And then it was like backing trailers and washing boats and rolling up straps and putting away life jackets and just all of kind of the odd jobs, lots of weed whacking and that kind of thing. So it was kind of, uh, just, a everything around the company type of a job. And then pretty soon, and again, this is a different time. Like, now you have to be older to guide. But back then, it was like there weren't really a lot of rules. So we started (laughs) guiding really young for whitewater. Then a river runster, it came out. So that was 25 years ago. And so we were whitewater guides. And suddenly, the company was like, who here can fish? (laughs) We need fly anglers. Like, so because seriously, like, this is, I mean, and in Montana, everybody knows kind of what that movie did. Everybody wanted to come and Mm -hmm. wanted to fly fish. So Glacier Raft Company was really a raft company, but it also, there were fish around obviously. And so, you know, we could take you fishing if you wanted, but pretty soon it was like, all right, we actually need to have a fishing business. So they put us on fishing and, um, yeah, so we were in high school and we were- Fishing guides. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you some personal things? Yeah, sure. Um, what's your maiden name?
0: Lang, L-A-N-G-E. L-A-N-G-E. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you took on your husband's name. Yep. Okay, we'll, we'll,
1: we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. And then, you don't have to answer this. I don't know. I'm not sensitive about it. I don't That's know if okay. you are. Your age. How old are you? Oh, my God. Well, so when I turned 40, I was 90. I mean, overnight. Like, so <laughs> what? I feel, <laughs> yeah, I feel like an old lady. I, uh, I'm i going to be 41 this year. All right, you don't look it, though. Oh, my gosh. It's those Japanese roots. You guys mm.
0: can be like 100, and you still look like you're 30. Do you,
1: do you remember, <laughs> well, you're probably not even old enough for this, the, the pearl cream commercials? Do you ever remember this commercial? Oh, there was this Asian lady and she she was selling like this face cream and it was called pearl cream and she looked really youthful and she would go on and she she'd say, how old do you think I am? I'm 80, but I look like I'm 30. It's the pearl cream. Oh my God. <laughs> and so, no. it was, okay. Well,
0: I mean, I'm, I'm five years younger than you. Well, you're turning 41 this year. Uh-huh. Yes, I'm five years younger than you.
1: You got to look it up. There's got to look it's it up. Gotta be on YouTube. I, I remember those co- I remember commercials pearl but cream. it wasn't like it's the
0: pearl cream. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so Is we, that your thing you've got the, the pearl cream. cream? You've got a lot of years under your belt.
1: Yeah, well, I also haven't been doing it consistently for 25 years. I that's just kind of when I started at the RAF company mm-hmm. and then over the years I've let my guide's license expire four times. Sure. Well, let, sure. let's talk about it. Yeah. So, so high sure. school you
0: guide, you pay you pay your way mm-hmm. through
1: school. I mean, I'm assuming you went to college? Yeah, I Went to college at the University of Montana and I came back and was guiding in the summertime and and then Glacier built a uh, like a um, fly shop you know and so I worked in the fly shop and and then just was guiding fly fishing and and then um, from there went to after I graduated uh, I got a job in television news out in Portland Oregon and so I worked out there and then was coming back still and taking some of my fishing clients but wasn't doing it full-time you know would just take a few like here and there. So I was a news anchor out in Portland for, I think, just five years or six years. And my ex-husband and I had a pact that we would only be in the city until our oldest daughter started school. Okay. We have the same pact right now. I get it. Right, changes your perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. So we just wanted to be kind of home where she could kick the same dirt When She started school and not that there's anything wrong with going to school in the city. I mean, there's so many benefits to having all of that cultural exposure of the city and a lot of things we don't get in Montana. But it was just kind of growing up, like I said, like at large and in the outdoors. You can't let the kids really run out free as you'd like when they're in the city. So it was definitely wanting to come back and then also just taking all of our vacations back in Montana, it's like coming back from Portland to Montana eight times a year. <laughs> it's a little much. So,
0: But yeah. Oregon's got so much oh, yeah. to explore, yeah, but totally. your heart was still in Montana.
1: Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's I definitely value all of the cool things there are to do in other places. In fact, when I travel around, the first thing I do is look around and be like, oh, I could live here. I could yeah. work there. I could do that. You know, yeah. You're like I love this place. I could totally live here. So I'm really open to it. But the that whole magnetism of Montana is actually a very real struggle. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yeah. And you know, you
0: hear that lots from people who are mm-hmm. from there. So tell me about this news anchor thing. What what kind of stories were you covering?
1: Oh my gosh! Like um, my biggest thing was meth. I did a lot of meth. You did a lot of meth. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I actually um, really got we we made meth. We had to, we, it was this is in the early years of the huge meth epidemic. And, um, I was on the governor's task force against methamphetamine. So the governor of Oregon kind of put together a team to gather as much information about the meth crisis as possible in order to become the first state to take pseudoephedrine off the shelves, the number one ingredient in making meth. And that was his goal is to to get federn off the shelves so that you couldn't have so many home jobs. So I was on that team to gather all this information. So I kind of like went embedded <laughs> in the mess scene. I'm serious. It was crazy. So, um, did it for, play with your head? Like, would yeah, you, did you
0: suffer any sort of like depression? Yeah. Or? It's a depressing
1: scene. It, I, I, be- I became, um, a little jaded and insensitive for sure. Mm. Um, so uh, just uh, definitely was around a ton of tweakers. And, um, so, you know, at one point, like we were pulling babies out of houses, babies crawling around, like with, you know, needles and powder and rat poison oh, and battery okay. acid and all of the stuff that are around. Another time, um, I had a lady like throwing dildos at me because she had a ton of dildos in her house <laughs> when we went in there. And it's because, like, on meth, you become like, Sexually heightened, but insensitive. Like apparently, like you feel less. But anyway, I there's a lot of graphic details about that. And so she was suddenly throwing dildos at me to get me out of the house. And I was like, well, you know, you've made it when somebody's throwing dildos at you as you're running from the house.
0: (laughs) We were trained. So many things I could say right now. I'm just biting my tongue.
1: (laughs) We were trained to um, knock on a door and step aside because the pit bulls would be the first ones to come out. We would have really accomplished people who were suddenly on meth, like just sobbing and, and hugging us. I, we did a story about uh, this woman who had eight meth-affected babies taken from her, eight oh. of her children. She just couldn't – she just kept having kids, and she kept staying a junkie. It was super terrible. And But then one family ended up adopting all eight. So, like, there's some super cool stories. And my main story – at the time um, that I was covering and gathering information on was once they would shut down a meth lab, they didn't have enough money in the state to, like, clean it up, and so the families that were living there would come back and squat. So I was, had this list of all these houses that were now, like, squatter houses that were still poisonous, so the houses were still, like, full meth labs. They hadn't been cleaned up yet, and the families would move back in. So I was going down the list with my photographer knocking on all these doors in the middle of the night to, like, basically find them and, and one, get them out of there because it's super sad and not safe. And then, two, just try to show that the state needed to allocate more money toward the cleanup. So, Did that work? Yeah, I think so. We It was, like, a four years, you know, but uh, Oregon was, I believe, the first to get pseudo taken off the shelves, and um, the governor thought that the project was successful. And, got a lot of crazy stories. (laughs) But um yeah, I think it was it was actually, you know, I joke about it, but it was a really crazy and important time in my life. And would have been. Yeah. And so the the balance there was pretty wild. It was like um trying to find time to get out in the woods, you know, around Oregon. And for me at the time woods meant meth labs. You know, so it was like I wanted to go to the symphony and the ballet and like refined culture. At that time, like yeah. I just didn't even want to be in the woods. Well, the that right makes then, sense.
0: It's so. association, right? Yeah. Had, when did you have your baby during all of this?
1: So uh, Ella was three months old when we moved to Portland. She was born in Missoula, Montana, and she's fifth generation Missoula. And then Delaney was born there in um, in Portland,
0: Okay, mm-hmm. so you were a news anchor while you mm-hmm. had your kids? Yep. Was that really hard, seeing all these babies who were so unfortunate yeah. and having your own?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, so I'd hear babies cry and I was nursing and I'd just uh, lactate like through my shirt. Totally.
0: <laughs> that is absolutely amazing. I just, I noticed that I have become a lot more sensitive since having a daughter. Like everything on television can make me cry. Oh, totally.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Or piss you off or make you super happy or whatever. Yeah. I haven't mm-hmm. got there yet, but
0: definitely like anytime that the child is harmed or like removed from their parents, mm-hmm. I just find myself in tears.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. So, no, that's that just so you know, does not change. Oh, great. <laughs>
0: yeah. I love being emotional. It's, it's yeah. horrible. It's really, I mean, I've always found myself to be insightful and I and reflective, mm-hmm. but emotional, no. So this is new for me. Yeah.
1: No, same. And it's a whole, yeah, it's a whole different thing. And And you've got a baby now, and you think that, you know, you grow out of certain stages, but then there's the toddler stage, then there's grade school age, then there's high school... And each one has these super crazy heightened emotions. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Yeah. I can't
1: wait to get to the teenage stage. Buckle up, girl. <laughs> so when did you decide?
0: Okay, so you- Ella's your first? Yep. So she'll be 16 in October. Okay. So when she's going to go to school, you guys decide it's time to get out of here. Is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. So stayed true to the timeline and then and moved back to Montana when she started um, kindergarten. With the intention of being a news anchor in Montana? No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> that was like... Then <laughs> um, the. the the news anchor thing actually is pretty serendipitous because I had a degree in journalism and I wanted, uh, you know, since kind of, it sounds very silly right now, so I'm sorry if this just sounds very cheesy and Nothing silly. Nothing sounds silly. Keep going. Well, in high school, you know, I'm not good at a ton of things, like I said. Like, I had to work really hard at school, and but the thing I could do was write, and so I wanted to write for fishing magazines. and. You know, if I tell people about it, it wasn't like people were crushing my dreams and saying, "No, you can't do that." It just they were just like, "Yeah, that's not a thing." There are like four people in the country write for fishing magazines. Like this, that's not a job. You, you'll never make any money. It's not a job. It's just not a thing. So I didn't have people like saying, "You can't do that. You're a girl and blah, whatever." It was more like, "No one does it. No one does that." That's not, a, you know, no, you can't, you can't do that. But I got a degree in journalism, and at the time the There was a really great professor in the print school who was Native American and had done a good job of bringing in a lot of minorities, and especially Native Americans, um, where in the broadcast department, there were very few, there were very few minorities. And so they really like kind of shanghaied me over, for lack of a better term, (laughs) to broadcast from print. So I went into print um, to write for fishing magazines, and then they were like, you know what, we could really use you over in the broadcast school. So yeah, so I, they kind of brought me over to broadcast. I really enjoyed it. Since we knew the plan was to raise the kids in Montana, and I didn't plan to be a news anchor you know, in Montana, I went into public relations my last year that we were in Portland. So I worked at a PR agency in You're a planner. You're planning all of this. Well, it's more just like, I think planning makes it sound really good. It's more like scramble. Like, you know, you kind of (laughs) like scramble. Like, what am I going to do? I (laughs) want to live in Montana. And I think a lot of Montana is like that. I really want to live there. What the hell am I going to do for a job? But you couldn't be a news anchor there? I think I I I could, um, but not raise a family. And then also, I have so many roots in Montana that... When I was going to school and when I first started in journalism and and, um, got a job at the local TV station before moving out to Portland, I was doing a lot of stories about my friends and family and stuff. So I had a friend die in a motorcycle crash and I was first on scene. Um, I'd had friends, you know, go off to war and had to go talk to their families. I'd have friends killed and have to go talk to their families. I had, you know, like one really good friend had a giant pot farm and that got busted and I had to go talk to, I mean, it was just like too close to home. Yeah. It's a lot. I didn't really want to, do television news, you know, in my town. You You know, know. that makes perfect sense. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so you spent the last year and you're... Doing public relations and worked for an outdoor PR agency in Portland and then um, started my own. And what was it called? It's called Outside Media.
0: Okay, Mm -hmm. all
1: right. Yep. And um, did uh, PR for fishing and ski companies Mm -hmm. and some outdoor brands for about 10 years. What kind of PR did you do? Um, So it was... Um, Really news-based public relations for brands. So everything from product launches to media tours to press releases and pitches um, to trade show stuff, all that sort of thing.
0: Okay. Mm And was it successful? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Why'd you leave it? Well, I got divorced and um, my husband got the company. Okay. (laughs) As it happens. So (laughs) you guys had the
0: company together. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So you had both your babies with your last husband. Was he Hutchison?
1: Yes. Yeah. But you kept your name. Yes, I or did. you kept his name. Yeah. Well, I I, I mean, that's how I identify. I was married longer than I wasn't. Right. So I was married for almost 20 years and got married, you know, before I, was, I think I was 20. So it was, I, I've kind of been a Hutchison for a long time. And then the, my children are Hutchisons. You know, I'm just looking
0: at your career and what I know of you, mm-hmm. the Trout te- television stuff,
1: mm-hmm. that was all while you were still married. Yep. And that was part of the company. So... Can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So... Trout TV, I started hosting, you know, 10, I think 10 years ago or something. And um, yeah, 2008, I believe um, it was owned by Bob Asbury in Washington. And he had a, a television show called Columbia Country Television. It was a syndicated barter. So it was at the time the only um, network fishing television show. So the kind you didn't have to pay to play. Mm -hmm. So it was, um, on ABC, NBC, CBS and Fox. So a syndicate, any of the networks could pick it up essentially for free. And then you would have to leave two and a half minutes of airtime for them to sell back to their local sponsors. So it was a great kind of a a great TV show to have. And, um, my ex-husband bought it from Bob kind of partway through me hosting it and it became just fly fishing. Were you guiding at that point? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, you got to back me way up. (laughs) Um, Outside media acquired Trout TV. And Trout TV was going, Outside Media was going, and I went back to guiding as well. So this, this season is really short. So there was the whole rest of the year to work at Outside Media and Trout TV. Mm-hmm. So I'd travel around working for Trout TV. And then in the summertime, I was still guiding. And three years ago, I opened the fly shop And that mostly had to do with like, I kind of was going through separation and just kind of needed, you know, my own business. And so the fly shop was just my fly shop and it was kind of like my tree fort. And it's just like a hangout. It's like, what my living room looks like, you know, it's just kind of this crazy, messy place. And people come and just sit and have whiskey and coffee and hang out and tell stories. And it's a fun, like really nice, well-rounded place to hang. Last year, you kind of mentioned Mm -hmm. about,
0: well, you tell a story. Tell me about Larry's and the name and all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the reason that I ended up with a fly shop is because I wanted a place to hang, you know? And so a lot of times people would just come into my office and talk about fishing. And then I'd end up, like giving all of my stuff away, like my flies or (laughs) stuff I've tied or just stuff I had, or just kind of talking about gear and talking about spots and stuff. And so it just kind of happened as things do. It wasn't a plan. I didn't even have a business plan. It was just ended up being this, this shop that just popped up like a mushroom. You just it rained and there's boom, it is, you know. <laughs> where, where is it? Um, it's in my hometown in Columbia Falls. And mm-hmm. what's it called? If you want to give yourself a plug It's quick. called Larry's Fly and Supply. And it's called that. It's short for Hillary. Yes. Hi, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the reason it's called that is this is my hometown, right? And so it's kind of weird to have a shop in your hometown where it's just like your guests who come in are the, you know, you the guy who put my braces on, you know, and it's like my kid's pediatrician and, the, you know, <laughs> so it's just, you know, people who you just really know from your community and the, my teachers and, and the lunch lady and the, you know, I mean, it's just like kind of all of these faces that you just have known the entire time. So I wanted to have something that's a throwback to the old school and just, you know, a connection with my hometown. And so the story is when one year in sports, um we decided to put our first names on the back of our jerseys instead of our last names. So it was like Dulcie, Aaron, Jessica, Lindsay, everybody had their first names instead of their last names. And my name is spelled H-I-L-A-R-Y, so one L. But the printer made a mistake and put two L's. So I peeled off the first L, so it said, hi, Larry. (laughs) And so everybody was like, hi, Larry. I'd run out on the court and everybody, hi, Larry. And all my friends would be like, oh, hi, Larry. And so it's, you know now like some of those people who remember that are just like hi larry and so it was just kind of meant to be a funny throwback people don't call me larry you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was just kind of a
0: moment in time
1: that People remember.
0: Do people passing oh. through be like? Uh, so look, I'm here to speak with Larry. Like, you're oh my gosh, cute, you're cute and all, Miss, but where's Larry?
1: Yeah, I I waited for that for two seasons in the shop, and it finally happened where I was ringing a guy up, and I give him his receipt, and he looks down, and he sees that like I had charged him full price, and he goes, "Well, old Larry always gives me a discount." <laughs> no kidding. And I was like, "Oh, does he?" And he. <laughs> Like, looks at me, and his face went like sheet white and then blood red. And he was like, Oh my God, you're Larry. <laughs> that and it's like, Yep. And he goes, I'm never getting a discount here, am I? <laughs> nope. Like, not bloody likely. <laughs> That's classic. So that was actually a pretty recent
0: business then. This is within Mm -hmm. three years. Yep. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about your affiliations today. So Uh look, I love watching you on social media. Mm -hmm. You just stay true to who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to look up Hillary's account to see what I'm talking about. But yeah, you look like you're on the river all the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Are you? Yeah. So um, where we live is really fortunate. It's right at the apex of the Middle Fork and the North Fork of the Flathead, which is the southern boundary to Glacier National Park and the western boundary to Glacier National Park. And then the South Fork comes in from the Bob Marshall Wilderness. And so we're kind of right here at these wild and scenic rivers. There's only four wild and scenic rivers in Montana and less than a quarter of one percent of our nation's rivers have the wild and scenic river protection. And we've got four of them right where we live. So it's 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 pretty awesome that I've got the Middle Fork, North Fork, and the South Fork right there, and the accessibility is ridiculous. So we have awesome access where I live. So because the river's... Are so close. The transportation that brought people to this area also goes along those routes. So Highway Two and the railroad tracks are kind of right there, and then um, the North Fork Road that comes down from Canada—it's kind of the main way—is right there as well. So, and then the entrance into Canada up near Fernie, kind of you know at that border, is is right there too. The port of Roosevelt. So there are roads. You know, it's not completely remote. Once you get on the river, that it feels really remote, but the access is right there. So yeah. I get off the river guiding. I try to be done by 5 and home by 6 and back on the river by 6.30 so we can go on the river every night <laughs> for happy hour. So um, we're definitely on the river every day. And then also even in the wintertime and the fall and spring. That's my next mm-hmm. question. I see your Instagram. I mean, it's snowing. Yeah. You're like, it's bloody cold, but it's woo! too cold. <laughs> well, it's part of me being 100 years old is that... Um, I actually threw a huge hissy fit this last winter. I froze my ass off one day, and I'm like, I'm not fishing when it's less than 35 degrees. I'm just not. I'm not going out there anymore. I'm not doing it. Like, I am I just kind of, like, had this breakdown where I'm like, I am not going to get frost nip anymore on my nose. My cheeks is not worth it. Were you guiding or fishing or both? No, just fishing. I don't guide in the wintertime. We actually just that. don't have the clientele. People don't want to really go out there. I could if people want to go, but... We just don't really book them.
0: Now on the subject of winters, so mm-hmm. you're really involved with
1: Protect Our Winters, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Can you tell me what that is? So Protect Our Winters is a climate change advocacy group made up of professional skiers and snowboarders. It was started more than a decade ago by um, Jeremy Jones, who owns Jones Snowboard and is a um, you know professional snowboarder. So he kind of was seeing winter leaving before his eyes and wanted to be able to do something about it and found that trying to change policy and, and try to, um, increase political will was the right way to do it. And so he pulled together a bunch of pro skiers and snowboarders, um, you know, Olympic athletes and, and, um, people who had a little bit of clout to go to Washington and, and kind of start lobbying for climate action. And that group grew and grew and, um, I found in kind of looking around the fly fishing industry that I wasn't really finding that outlet where there were, you know, people who were really getting together and going to Washington and, and, Really asking for change, or or doing it even at a local level, you know, with your own municipalities or in your own state legislatures. So, um, well, like so, what kind
0: of changes are you guys looking for?
1: So, for example, the clean power plan and and trying to at the time, you know, being part of the Paris Agreement obviously was really important. And then also there are a lot of state policies uh, like for example, regulations on emissions and, um, building practices. And, um, there are a lot of loopholes with, uh, coal power, power plants and, and on state lands where, you know, they're able to operate for pennies on a dollar and just different kind of things that, uh, that states are in charge of. And then sometimes they're at a federal level. So looking at which policies, affect water in montana and idaho and washington and north carolina wherever it might be and then figuring out if that's kind of a state-run thing or if it needs to be at a higher level and then going and talking to the appropriate people so it's really letting them know from an economic standpoint how important winter time is um and then clearly for me i love winter but it's about the summer from an economic standpoint so if we don't have the snowpack you know, then suddenly I'm out of a job. So we water. need we need the water, and where I live, all of our water comes from glaciers and groundwater. So it really is key. <laughs> yeah, is that is that where you put most of your focus
0: these days from a conservation stance?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that we can't do everything, and no. and I, if
0: and if you take on too many things or too many mm-hmm. you know causes, then it just waters it down.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. No, I it, and you, you can't be effective. No. So so I would find you look around and there's so much that needs to be done and you kind of get this like overwhelming feeling like oh my gosh I have to do that I have to help I have to like I talked to you about earlier about when I was in high school I felt like oh my gosh I have to do all this all these things. Yeah. And I realized that you don't you're not that effective if you're trying to do all of these things. So putting my energy into something that I was good at or cared really a lot about and was super passionate about was important. So I just I literally had to pick two things is the way I did it in my mind. And um that was climate action and public lands action. So those are the two kind of things I really try to focus on is public lands access and use and and then climate. And and the reason I say climate specifically is because it's habitat, right? Um and cold, clean water and and those things, but it's the beginning part of that. It's the overall encompassing thing that unless we address climate first, then those other things are just, a, a, I will not say a waste of time, but um, they're not able to find the accomplishment and the success that they deserve. If we actually don't address climate first and strongest. Do you have any suggestions of somebody
0: I could sit down with to discuss climate change? Yeah. Because I don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, you can hear different people's opinions, but I'd love to sit mm-hmm. down with somebody who yeah. that's their job.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, 20 years ago when I was kind of learning to be an interviewer and and a reporter in, um, in right when I was starting out um, I interviewed Dan Fagery and he's a friend of mine from Glacier National Park but he's the chief climatologist and and um, you know he is leading all of the USGS driven out of Glacier National Park climate influence across the world. So um, he's the he's the chief scientist for climate change. And I was lucky enough to kind of know these things way back then just by talking with him and being at Glacier and running in the same circles. And um, my very first interview practicing to be a reporter um, was interviewing him as he was building the Terra Space Satellite as a consultant to go and look at some of these pictures of the glaciers changing. Wow. Yeah, and this is 20 years ago. So I feel really lucky to have... Been able to see some of the science, you know, that wasn't just trending. It wasn't a hashtag. It wasn't something on mm-hmm. social media. It was something very real that you know um, that was strictly science based. And so, so any of my climate talk has to be from a science-based place. And so, you know, I'm I'm not, there's no debate. You know, it's just the science is settled. And for me, it was settled very early on um, just by kind of being surrounded by those people. So the predictions that he was making way back then, I've seen come to be right before my eyes. And, you know, we've got two important stoneflies, the meltwater stonefly and the Western glacier stonefly that are set to be placed on the endangered species list, which is amazing. So that's the food chain stuff. I mean, this the, that's where our native cutthroat are getting, you know, their sustenance. And to put stoneflies on the endangered species list, because our waters are warming so drastically, is just, it breaks my heart. And then Um, The biggest threat to the biodiversity of this really intact ecosystem, which is Glacier National Park, is the hybridization of rainbow trout with with cutthroat. So the hybridization of cutthroat with non-native species and specifically rainbows. And so that's something I've seen before my eyes too, is we're catching all of these hybrids, these cutthroat that are, you know, um, kind of interbreeding with rainbow. And so now we're losing that perfect strain of cutthroat. Why are they breeding with rainbows? How does it have to do with the temperature? Mm-hmm. So rainbows are really a, a bit hardier, and um, they can survive and get stronger in warmer temperatures. And in fact, um, the places you know, kind of where you know they're grown, are can be in in lakes or um, reservoirs or things like that. So they can get really big and strong even before they were kind of illegally introduced to the system or accidentally introduced to the system way back when, but um, and so they get really strong and hardy in the lakes and then can move up from the lake and uh, into our system where cutthroat need super cold, clean water. And so the rainbows just get stronger and um, they are pretty similar and can interbreed you know, in their habits really effectively. So as it gets warmer, it just becomes more prime for rainbows. So the rainbows just get stronger and move up into the system farther and farther toward where it was co- so cold that they didn't really want to be. So now it's just not that cold. <laughs> yeah. So the yeah the, the hybridization is, is um, USGS tells me, is the number one threat to our biodiversity in uh, Glacier, which is a fully intact ecosystem right now. That is really scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's scary because when your thing is fish and they're saying fish are the thing that potentially could crash this, it's like, whoa, I don't just have awareness here. I have a responsibility here to say something, you know, and this is, this is all climate enhanced. And this is, you know, 97% of the world's scientists are saying that this is the deal.
0: Are you afraid
1: Mm -hmm. that your kids aren't going to get to have the upbringing
0: you and Whitney and your brother did?
1: Well, it's funny you mention that because my daughter just started her first summertime job this year and she's working at Glacier Raft Company. (laughs) So um, I'm, I'm happy for her and I'm glad to see her up there but it get it like kind of got my hackles up but like a little I was felt like this tingling feeling like oh my gosh should I even like let her get into this is there even a place for her in the future here like is there a future for any of us in this and I know that's so gloom and doom but the way I see it is that if she's in it and around it she can also help save it and if she she doesn't want to. If she doesn't enjoy it, you know, then then she can make that choice. But as it is right now, she sees it and she wants to be a part of it. And so, yeah, it, it scares me for sure that it's, it's certainly not the same as it was then already. So um, we as humans and adapt, and animals adapt. Glaciers can't adapt to climate change. They just melt. There's nothing they can do to not melt. You know. Yeah. Um, so that's the scary part to me is that we'll all probably be okay. Like we're we. Adapt, but where we live, like our home isn't gonna be okay, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna get worse before it gets better because what we're, we haven't seen, you know, it takes a certain amount of time to even, if we slowed or stopped the change now. There's still kind of the swinging pendulum, so it still needs to stop before it can go back the other way. So we just need to kind of prepare our fishery for what's next. So addressing this hybridization and looking at how to protect our native bull trout and you know our native species now is, is super important. What would you want to see the general public do to be able to help prevent any more damage? I would say call your elected leadership. You know, really right now we need to advocate for um, policy that protects the environment, specifically um, tries to keep our world from warming. So, you know, this dependency on burning fossil fuels is just is really doing it, (laughs) doing it to us. So I'm trying to move toward alternative energy sources and um, even just little things like trying to encourage car manufacturers that we really need that, you know, hybrid (laughs) F-150, you know, because I need to drive a truck. So there's this whole battle with being a hypocrite. Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. Every time
0: I get on an airplane, oh I feel like God. a hypocrite.
1: Yeah. And and we are, but we also need to to keep moving toward the other way, like toward a direction that gives us an alternative, gives us an option because we just don't have the options right now especially from an economic standpoint Do you think it's
0: more powerful to hop on the phone as an individual or to team up with an organization and do it that way? Oh both,
1: for sure the reason that I think it's important to be part of organizations is because for me, you know, I'm not smart on my own, like I need to hear things from experts and I need to learn from other people and and um, I need to like study my ass off I just, you know, don't just know things, you know, so, so being <laughs> Surrounded by people who are smarter and and um, well spoken. I wouldn't say smarter than <laughs> you,
0: Hillary. I would say better informed, mm-hmm. or people who have devoted their entire life to the science. Yeah, yeah.
1: right. So, and and a lot of times in these nonprofit organizations um, or the brands that are really up to date on this kind of thing, that's where you'll find the people who can really help you you know, take the next step. And so, so both. So for example, uh, at protect our winters and also backcountry hunters and anglers, and a lot of these different groups, if you go to their websites, they actually will update you on the website about current policy in your state. And then they'll also give you like kind of an example of a draft letter or how to call there's, it literally is a button that's like contact your elected leadership. And then it gives you their numbers and gives you, you know, talking points and it helps you kind of you know, be brave enough to make that call or drive to your capital or go to Washington. Whether or not it works, I guess we can be jaded about that and be like, nobody ever listens. But I have well, seen real change. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I have, especially on the public lands front, you know, anglers really have done a good job in um, voicing their opinion about protecting stream access, especially in Utah, where it's always at risk. And so, you know, they've, they've reversed some really important decisions.
0: They're very lucky to have you on their side. I mean, we're lucky to have you on our side because oh. you're extremely well-spoken. Oh, posh. No, you are. You do a great oh, job at this. Now I have a selfish question for mm. you. Do you have any advice for mums and, and getting your, our kids outside? Like, uh-huh. do, did you push it on your kids? Mm-hmm. Did you make it so it was hard to get? What did right. you do?
1: Well, okay. So I think that, um, you get a lot of advice not to push your kids because they'll just push back. But I found that our, Lives are so short. You've got to push them out there because, like, what does any kid want to do? They want to like eat snacks and and hang out and like they know they're on they're on their own. Kind of need a little push to. I mean, what do you you have to push and brush your teeth? What are you gonna say like? don't push your kids to brush their teeth because they'll just push back. We wait until their teeth rot out of their head. (laughs) You got to tell them to brush their teeth. Like you have to make them go to bed. You have to, you know, get help them cross the street. Well, I don't want to push my kid to look both ways. You know, that's (laughs) it. So it's like, there is a bit of that as parenting. where actually pushing them toward the good things are important. Like if it's say your prayers at night, if it's write a thank you letter to grandma and grandpa, if it's go outside. So, I don't think there's anything wrong with pushing your kids outside. It's one of those good things. It's not a bad thing. And so I certainly have had to push my kids out. I, I do it now. Like, you know, you don't know, push them outside, and then they're standing in front of the town pump drinking Super Sippers. And, that, well, I don't know that. Right. <laughs> but I've seen I've seen it. And fortunately, like, pushing my kids, like, keeps them from, you know, keep them off the streets. <laughs> but you know how nowadays it's like, remember when we
0: were kids – um, my parents didn't know all where I was all the time. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, take your bike and get out. Go mm-hmm. catch tadpoles and stuff. Build forts. Do you find that as a mom now that you're scared because the media has got you all freaked out about all the crazy people out there?
1: I mean, how do you manage that? Well, um, the more you can go with them, the better. I think that they want to hang with you outdoors. And I've found that, that I I don't need to like show them everything, but just kind of being out there and hanging is good. I let them experience the outdoors the way they want to, which has taken some adjustment for me. Like um, they want to have music on the boat. And I've I've been like, no, we're not bringing the Bluetooth. We're not listening to whatever crap you listen to on the boat. <laughs> but now we're listening to all that crap. Yeah. Because it's like... Compromise. Yeah, it's a compromise. It gets them out there. They get whatever snacks they want. They get to bring their friends. So it's really letting it be their zone and their way. Mm-hmm. But you know, out on the river. And so in terms of kind of the freedom in the outdoors, um, Yeah, I I think that they can't really be as at large as I was, my sister was, and my brothers. But it's all also in perspective. They also have a lot more opportunity that we didn't have. There are now chances for them to kind of get involved in a lot of climbing groups or um, if they want to do a new activity like mountain biking. um, There are so many things that exist that we didn't have. And there are a lot of other ways, thanks to all these newfangled technologies, that they can experience it. So, you know whether it's having Onyx maps that kind of show them where the public land is and where the private land is and so it allows them to explore without getting shot right. or something, you know, then then that's something we didn't have. You know, we were just kind of lucky trying to get out there. But now it's like you can see where your public land access is, which is really nice. and And then also just kind of reading about all of the cool places that there are to go in the entire world, I don't feel like... I felt like the world was so... Big and I could never get to it. And Mm -hmm. now the kids are saying, oh, we should go hiking there. And I look where, and they're saying, oh, that's in New Zealand. (laughs) And they're like, well, we should save up. Like, you know, world is their oyster. They can really, like, make a goal and go kind of see the whole world. So, yeah, I I think that uh, to answer your question, some advice to parents is, one, get them out there as much as possible to make compromises so that they can be themselves in the outdoors. And it's not just your experience. We mm-hmm. all experience it differently. And three, just be open-minded about, about what they can do and what their opportunities are, because it might not be that they can just go free, you know, all the time, but what can they do? Right. You know, what, and then let that be. Do you think, you hear about
0: helicopter parents all the time mm-hmm. nowadays. Do you think that the world is really that much more dangerous than it used to mm-hmm. be? Or do you think that, and I'm asking you this because you did work in media. Uh-huh. Do you think that with media and the, and the internet,
1: we're just more sensitive to what could possibly go wrong? Well, you know, one thing, David Mangum always has this saying, there's just too many motherfuckers. No. I mean, it's just like <laughs> a population true. issue. <laughs> you know, it's just any problem that you've got. You can zero it into there's just way too many motherfuckers. So there's just a lot of people on the planet, and so um, and so I think that uh, in the outdoors, as the outdoor industry you know grows and changes, and um, people are experiencing it in different ways, it's just different. So uh, is it more dangerous, or are we just helicopter? I feel like it's a little more dangerous. Like I kind of do, and maybe I'm totally wrong about that. I actually don't know, but from looking from looking at it just not through media's eyes but as a parent there you know there's some scary stuff in places that I didn't expect there to be scary stuff so I don't know maybe Mm -hmm. we just need more fishermen and
0: less motherfuckers yeah (laughs) and that concludes this episode of anchored thank you for listening